Okay. It's our second surprise. There we go. Okay. All right, and I got a chair. I've never had a chair before. I'm not sure what to do with it, but um, this morning we're going to talk about the Bible. The topic this morning is I, I want to believe, but I don't trust the Bible. Have you ever had, you ever bought a piece of furniture? A lot of furniture today is you can assemble it yourself, right? Or a toy for your kids, and you get it home, and you've got it spread out across the floor, and you're surrounded by parts. There's screw AA and washer GG that goes into hole H on part Q, and you've got to make sure the part's facing the same way it is in the picture. And have you ever sat there wondering what sadistic nut wrote these instructions? Because they don't say you know, what they're supposed to say. They're not complete. Right? Or they're, they're incorrect. That's even worse, you know. Um, sometimes they're made overseas and they, they use translators to translate them. And the translators don't always speak English that well. And you get some very interesting uh, translations. And it doesn't always work. Well, our life's like that sometimes, isn't it? Um, we have different spheres in our life. We've got, we've got work. We've got our home. We've got church. We have other things we may be involved in. And these circles, they touch and they overlap. But they are different. And sometimes things aren't going well in one. And, and other things are going well in another. And sometimes, nothing's going right in any of them. You ever feel that way? I don't know how I can possibly catch up. Every place I turn, every place I go, I'm behind. i got all this stuff to do. I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. Sometimes it's a day. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's a month. Sometimes it's a lifetime. What would you give at that moment to have a set of instructions that were complete and that worked every time? What would we do with such a book or such a, such a tool? How valuable would it be? Where would you keep it? How would you handle it? Well, of course, as Christians, we believe we have such a book. We have the Bible. And we kind of just, of course, we have the Bible, especially in America. We have Bibles. There's probably a couple hundred of them sitting in the chairs in front of you, besides the ones you bought. We've got them on devices. I have an app in here. I probably, I don't even know how many I have. I probably have at least 10 or 12 right on here. I can carry them anywhere I go. We have such access to it that sometimes we take it for granted. But the scriptures are there to give us a revelation of God. They are his special revelation. General revelation is nature, right? What we see around us, the observable universe. We look at it and we can see the hand of a creator. We can see the order, the design. And we know there must be a God. But the Bible is what's called special revelation because it's God speaking directly to us about himself. It gives us a place that we can anchor our lives, right? We can hold our life up against the scriptures if we choose to do it. And say, how am I measuring up? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I doing it the way I'm supposed to be doing it? Do I meet the requirements that God has laid out in his word for me? And this is the standard. There's a story. I told it a few years ago when I spoke. So if you remember it, great. If not, why not? Um, But it's about a watchmaker in a town. He had a little shop. And he had a big, beautiful clock right in the front in the middle of, of the window. And every day, all the workers would stream into town from all parts of the outside of the, outside of the town to this factory, which was the center of the hub, the hub of this village. And every day, he noticed one man would stop as all the workers went by and stop at that clock and check his watch and look at the clock and then move on. And he thought this was a little odd. So one day, he said, I'm going to catch this guy. So he waited, and he rushed out when he saw the guy. And he said, hey, I notice every day you stop and you do this. What's, what's going on? Because he said, oh, well, you know, it's just that I'm... See, my job is I'm the timekeeper at the factory. It's my job to, put, to blow the whistle at 4 o'clock every day to tell everyone the day is over, it's time to go home, and I have to be sure I'm right. So every day I stop here and I check my watch against your clock just to be sure that I've got the right time. And the clockmaker says, we've got a problem. Because every day at 4 o'clock, when that whistle blows, I come and fix this clock because it's never kept good time. 
Okay? What are they doing? They're comparing. It's circular, right? You're comparing yourself to yourself. Paul says in Corinthians, talking about other apostles who were more interested in their stature than in, than in the word, he said, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. Another way to translate it is they're fools. When we make the standard ourselves or our neighbor and say, well, I'm better than him, so I must be okay, it is always going to be easy to find somebody you're better than, right? Because we want, we're predisposed towards thinking that to, to kind of minimize our faults. It's always going to be easier to find somebody, somewhere, that you're better than. And if that's the standard you use, you'll never get it right. But the scriptures provide that standard. So we want to look at today are reasons we can give to show other people that they can trust the Bible and also sure up some doubts that we may have from time to time. And I have to warn you, I did a series on this about 12 or 13 years ago, and I had on my notes, it took six weeks at 45 minutes a week to get through the material on the Bible. I've cut it down. It's only going to be three hours, so don't worry. But um, we're going to go very fast. So buckle up. We're going to go 100 miles an hour. If it's too fast, I'm sorry. Catch me later if I miss something. And I'm happy to fill it in. But we're going to really move through here. The first thing I want to point out is when we hear someone say, I don't trust the Bible. Or I can't believe in a God because of the problem of evil and suffering. We have to remember there's a person. There's a questioner behind the question. There's a person. We've got to look at what's going on in that person's life. Is this really an intellectual objection? Have they examined the evidence they just don't understand and they want to, as an honest search for truth? Or is it moral rebellion, masking as an intellectual objection to give them an excuse not to believe? Because they have to handle those things differently. If it's a moral rebellion, you can't reason them into the kingdom. That will never work. You can provide answers to a person who's searching honestly and you can help them. You cannot provide those answers to someone who doesn't want to see them. Um, Aldous Huxley, a philosopher, said this. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. He knew there was a God, but he didn't want to believe it. He didn't want to submit to it. And so he easily found reasons not to believe. And that's a very honest and bold statement. George MacDonald said, To give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. But if the person really is interested in finding the truth, we have good answers for them. And we've got to remember, the Bible is true, but it doesn't contain all truth. We don't want to get caught up in, I can only read the Bible, I don't look at anything else. Everything that's true outside of the Bible will square with the Bible, but the Bible isn't meant to contain all truth. G.K. Chesterton was asked to come speak in a panel discussion about 100 years ago. He was a great writer. And the discussion was about great works of, of Western, Western world literature. And, and the question they were being asked was, it was posed this way. If you were going to be trapped on a tropical island with no way out, what one book would you want to have with you? And they had Platonic scholars and Aristotelian scholars and all these guys, they're giving their answers. And Jester, and he was the token Christian. He was there, so he would say the Bible. They knew that, and they were going to talk about the Bible. But when they came to him, and they asked him that question, he didn't say the Bible. He said... If I was trapped on a tropical island with no way off, I would want Brown's Book of Shipbuilding. Okay? Everything in the Bible is true, but not all truth is in the Bible. It doesn't tell you how to build a boat. And so we have to remember that. We have to treat the Bible and look at what it claims to be and what it is and treat it fairly. What, so what does the Bible claim to be? In 2 Timothy <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 3, Timothy says, and we all know this verse, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness. That word uh, breathed out or God-breathed, theopneustos, is the word we use, inspired by God. It comes from God. Uh, Peter reinforces that in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the words of God given to us through men. The Bible makes the unequivocal claim that this is the word of God. These are God's word to us. So I've divided, to look at this today, I've divided the, the doubts about Scripture into three basic categories. One is, is it really from God? Is there anything special about this book? How can we feel, why is this special? Why is this different than the Koran? Why is this different than Hindu writings? Why is this different than other writings that people, books, Book of Mormon and other writings like that? How is the Bible different? How can we be sure it's from God? The second one is, is what we have, this Bible we hold in our hands today, is this really what was written? Hasn't it been corrupted? Haven't there been changes? How do we know that this is right? After all, it's a very ancient book. And then finally, we'll deal with some questions along the lines of, can I trust it? What about some different objections? And like I said, we're going to go really fast. Um, so is it really from God? The first thing I want to point out, we don't have time to dive into this today too much, but is the witness of Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is God. Jesus says the Bible is God's word. Well, that doesn't really work too well because it's circular. But if we could somehow establish, separate from the other, that Jesus was God, then we would have a really good witness to the authenticity of the word, wouldn't we? Now, we're, we, again, we don't have time to go into today, but if Jesus rose from the dead, would, he, would you want to give him the authority? Would you want to believe him? That would be a pretty good indication that he might be who he said he was. And if he's who he said he was, then he ought to know, and we can rely on him when he says the Bible is God's word. And the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. It is one of the best attested events in history. There is, is we could spend an hour or two easily, easily on that. Um, and we don't have time today. So the witness of Jesus is an important way that we know that the Bible is true. Um, and then there's the uniqueness of the Bible. How is it unique? Well, there's a number of ways. First of all, it's unique in its continuity. The Bible, unlike, I can't think of any other, I was trying to think of any other book written like this. It was written over 1,500 years, over 40 generations, over 40 authors from widely divergent walks of life. These were not all educated people. You've got Moses, a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. David, a king, a poet, a musician, a soldier, and a shepherd. Joshua, a military and political leader. Peter, a fisherman. Uh, Amos, a shepherd. Nehemiah, a king's cupbearer in, ex in exile. Daniel, a prime minister, also in exile. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. These are all some of the authors of scripture. Writing over 1,500 years in different places. Moses in a wilderness. Jeremiah and Paul wrote at least part of their writings while they were imprisoned. Daniel in a palace, in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, uh, in a wide variety of literary styles. It's got poetry, historical narrative, songs, biography, and personal correspondence. All of this, over this much time, you would expect this book to go off in 50 different directions, and yet there is one unique, as you read through the scriptures, you see it very clearly, there's one message, God's redemption of man. The paradise lost of Genesis is the paradise regained in Revelation. We have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we see it over and over. You know, it is the main theme of every part of the Bible. The Bible is incredibly unique in that regard. It's unique in its circulation. The Bible is read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. It isn't even close. As we go through some of these things, I was thinking this morning, my son likes to ask me all the time, 
um, Dad, who's the best tight end who ever played? Really? I mean, there's like thousands of them. You try to go through a couple of tight ends. We've got a couple of good ones that play now if you follow football. He'll ask me, who's the best basketball that ever played? And my favorite player when I was little was Wilt Chamberlain. But I can say I think Michael Jordan is the best player who ever played. And there's a difference. Somehow he has separated himself, right? And he's generally regarded to be the best player. It's not even like that when you look at the scripture with other, other books. It's not even close. There is no comparison. Circulation, the first major book ever printed was the Latin Vulgate, a Latin version of the Bible, on Johann Gutenberg's press in the 1500s. Before the end of the 20th century, well over 2 billion Bibles were in circulation. United Bible Societies in 1998 distributed 21 million Bibles, 21 million uh, New Testaments, and almost half a billion uh, individual portions of Scripture or topical books with um, a bunch of different Scriptures mixed together. Uh, it's unique in its translation, one of the first major books translated. It's been translated into over 2,200 languages. Wycliffe Bible Translators has over 6,000 people working in over 850 languages in 50 countries, and about 500 are having the scriptures translated for the first time. We have a missionary that I believe we still support. He had to come off the field in Africa because of some, some danger that he, he was in. But before this, he worked for Wycliffe Bible transfer, uh, Translators. His job with a bunch of other people on a team was to go to places that didn't have a written language. They only had an oral language. They learned the language. They created a written language for the people and taught it to them. And they translated the scriptures into that language. They could give them a written, a written copy of the scriptures in their language. Can you, does that happen with any other book? Why? Why is that? It's unique in its survival. Survival through time. We mentioned over 1,500 years... But from the end of the New Testament to the first printing press was another 1,500 years, all written on perishable materials by hand. And there's more manuscript evidence for the scriptures than for any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. And actually, that's generous. It's probably more like 20 or 30 pieces combined. Um, survival through persecution. From Roman emperors to 20th century communist dictators, people have tried to physically crush and stamp out the Bible. It's unique, it survives through criticism. And people have tried to attack over and over persistently and con consistently the scriptures to show where they're wrong. And over and over again, every challenge has been met. Every, every one has been answered. The French philosopher Voltaire, some of you remember know that name. In the 1700s, he said that within 100 years, Christianity would be wiped out. There'd be no trace of it. It would barely be remembered. Fifty years after he died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and printed Bibles and print Bibles on one of his printing presses. And that house, I believe, is still owned today by the French Bible Society. Okay? The, all these people who have attacked have come and gone. And the Bible still stands. It's unique in its teaching. Not just the moral teachings, which are unique, but also in things like prophecy. The Bible contains a large body of prophecies relating to very specific property, prophecies. Not vague ones. Not Gene, we're not talking about Gene Dixon now. These are prophecies. And we, we don't have time to go through all of them, but... Uh, individual nations, specific cities, Israel, the Messiah. There's prophecies about the city of Tyre that say it's going to be like a bare rock, and people could, what are you talking about? And yet today, where the old city was, it's like a bare rock on an island. Exactly what the Bible said would happen, happened. Um, messianic prophecy. In his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, an excellent book, by the way. I, I borrowed it from my aunt when I was 12 years old, and I never returned it. Um, and I started going through it then. And now they combine the two volumes into one. It's about that thick. But it is an excellent place to read about the resurrection, the evidences for the resurrection, the evidence for the scriptures. It's really good. But in this book, Josh McDowell lists 61 specific messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. He gives the prophecy where it's located and the fulfillment. 
And he cites Peter Stoner's book called Science Speaks, where Peter Stoner looked at just eight of those 61. And, he, and they did an analysis, and, and these are mathematicians, I don't know how they figure this out, but they do, that the odds of a man by chance fulfilling just these eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled was one in ten to the 17th power. That is a one with 17 zeros. To give you an idea how big that is, that is, that's more money than my wife will spend in the gift shop on the way back from Costa Rica. It might be close. Um, but now I'll give you an illustration. If you took silver dollars and laid them out on the face of Texas, not New Jersey, Texas, and then once you did that, you kept adding till the pile was two feet deep. You marked one of the silver dollars, mixed the whole thing up, blindfolded a man and said, you can walk as far as you want for as long as you want, but you have to pick one. That is one in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, now people say, well, Jesus deliberately went around trying to fulfill prophecies. Included in these eight are prophecies about where and when he was born. That's a tough one to control yourself, right? Um, the manner and time of his death. Now, you may think he could have something to do with that, but the Romans probably didn't often listen to the people they were going to kill about what they were going to do to them, right? And we, can, we can stipulate that, right? Incredible prophecies um, all through the Bible and very specific ones. The Bible doesn't cop out and make general statements. Like there was an old Saturday Night Live skit, Tomorrow's, tonight's weather will be dark, right? It doesn't do that. These are specific prophecies, and, and we see them fulfilled over and over. In its recording of history, it's unique. Um, where the Bible has over and over, skeptics have said, well, see, the Bible made a mistake here. There was no such thing as the Hittites. We find no record of the Hittite Empire anywhere. And then they found it. They found a library in Turkey. There's no Pontius Pilate. There's no record of this man ever being governor in Judea. And they found an inscription, and they found more and more evidence, and sure enough, he was. Over and over again, this has happened. And there isn't a historical fact given in Scripture that's been refuted or been shown to be wrong. And then finally, it's unique in its influence in other literature. Can you think of any other book that has this many books written about it or associated writings? We have Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, lexicons, geographies, atlases, Thousands of books about theology, religious education, hymnology, missions, biblical languages, church history, devotionals, commentaries, apologetics. Not all good books. There's a few you probably should use to start fires. They're not good. But they're written. They're inspired by this work. What other book has ever done that? Why is it that this book inspires that? Because it's unique. And it certainly is evidence that there's something different about this book. And it's, it's from God. It's the word of God. Is it really, the, what we have today, is that really what God said? Is that really what was written? The second question. First, we'll talk about the canon. Now, in um, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, a big conspiracy was raised. It's, become very, it's been popularized now for people to think that there's all these other books that were excluded. A bunch of these corrupt, um, wealthy, kind of backroom-dealing church leaders got together, and they picked the books they wanted, and they excluded other books that reveal all kinds of truth. That's nonsense. No historian believes any of that is true. Okay, the way the, the, uh, the canon, is called, was put together was because it was already accepted by the church. When the church councils met in 393 and 397 A.D. in, in Hippo and Carthage, um, the list they put together and codified was to fight some issues they were having with some heresies growing, the Gnostic heresies, and also the spread of the kingdom, uh, just the, of the Roman Empire as well as the spread of Christianity, and they wanted to get it standardized. But we have lists of the exact same 27 books from the church father origin from 150 years earlier. And there are other small lists here and there all over the place. They simply accepted what the churches had already recognized as the inspired books of the New Testament. The Old Testament canon had already been settled 
um, in the Jewish religion, and, and the Christians just adopted that as it was. Um, but the same way, they were accepted as being from Scripture. Paul, or rather, Peter testifies to Paul's writings while they were still contemporary as Scriptures. You remember the passage where he says the people take Paul's writings and they try to twist them the way they do the other Scriptures. So right within the Bible, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. And so the canon was not made up or, uh, or put together artificially anyway. And if you read some of those other books, they're kind of fantastic. They're kind of ridiculous, some of the things that they say or they teach. And they, they are missing things, or they have things in that, that books in the Bible don't have. They're full of errors. They have problems. They have inconsistencies. And so um, the church rightly cast them aside. What about the manuscript evidence? How can we believe that we have the actual text when they're copied by hand on perishable materials for between 1,500, for the newest parts of the Bible, to 3,000 years for the original, the oldest parts of the Bible? before the invention of modern type. Well, for the Old Testament, first we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Everyone's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you don't know the story, in 1947, a shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave up on a hillside and heard something break. And he went to investigate, and it turned out it was probably one of the most significant archaeological finds in history. They found in the Qumran Caves, there was a community of Essenes who had gathered scriptures and other documents, over 40,000 inscribed fragments, and over 500 books have been reconstructed from what they found there. And they were stored very well in jars and sealed. So they were in very good condition. Is it so hard to believe that God put that there and said, I'm just going to wait? Okay, now. And released it. The timing of God. What's the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So what? We found a bunch of old scrolls. Well, before that time, the oldest Hebrew manuscript we had of the Old Testament was from A.D. 916. as a Masoretic text. The, New Testament, the Old Testament rather, was completed around 400 B.C. We think Esther was the last book. So you've got about 12 to 1,300 years of a gap. When we don't have anything in the middle. Okay, we had a Greek translation, the Septuagint, that was done, but we had no Hebrew documents. These documents that were found were dated about 100 B.C. They were within just a couple of hundred years of the original writings of, at the end of the Old Testament. And what do we do? We compared now this thousand year, it's a thousand years older than the Masoretic text we had. So they compared them to find all the errors that would have crept in over a thousand years. And here's what they found. It was 95% accurate. The 5% variants were spelling and had no change in meaning. How does that, there's no other book like that. There's nothing else like that in ancient literature or that we see anywhere. Um, there was a complete manuscript of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, uh, this is what uh, someone said about it who, who studied the documents. Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. The remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11. If you look at your Bibles, don't you have to do it now, but if there's a note, footnote, it might say in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I forget now, it slipped my mind which one, I think the... NIV adds light, and other versions don't, but they footnote it and say that these manuscripts do have the word light here. Um, but light is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words, there's only one three-letter word in question after 1,000 years of transmission, and this word doesn't change the meaning of the passage. Why was it so accurate? Well, you have to understand the, the love of the scriptures that the people transmitting it had. There were two basic groups that during this time that were doing the copying, the Talmudists and then the Masoretes. The Talmudists had detailed instructions for copying and spacing. The, 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 you, a certain amount, I forget if it was a, a couple, so many hair's breadths between letters, what they had to do. Certain books had to end on a certain line. Incredible detail. 
they had to wash and be in complete Jewish garb when they were writing. If it, it says that even, even a king addresses you while you're writing God's name, you don't answer him. You were not allowed to write God's name with a pen you had just dipped in ink. They had all these regulations. Why? Just rules, just legalism? Because they loved the text. When they finished, they knew this was as good as what I copied from. Despite the well, the, how well they knew it, they couldn't write one thing from memory. Can you imagine if I asked you to write down John 3.16? You'd probably start writing it from memory, right? You would just naturally do that, and you'd, you'd get it right. They weren't allowed to do that. They had to make sure they looked and copied, looked and copied. The Masoretes who came later, they actually numbered the words and letters in every book. They knew how many of each letter occurred in every book. They knew the middle letter and the middle word of each book. And when a document was finished, they would check it. And if it didn't work, they'd destroy it. If they found one little error, it was garbage. All that work, probably years. But then if it was good, it had equal authority, equal weighting to what it was copied from. Incredible, incredible love for the documents. And that's why we have them today. Um, what other book has inspired that kind of love for the text? Um, the New Testament manuscripts, you've, we've got a chart you can look at quickly. Uh, same kind of an idea. Um, these are four or three well-known pieces of classical literature. Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars, and Plato's Tetralogies. If these could have been destroyed, it would have saved me some grief in college. But they weren't, unfortunately. Um, and we got the, when they were written, the earliest copy that we have, and the time span. So for Homer's Iliad, it was 500 years before we have a copy, and we have 643 copies. That's a lot. For Caesar's Gallic Wars, 850 years, we have 10 copies. For Plato, 1,250 years, and we just couldn't manage to lose those last seven copies and save me some grief. Seven lousy copies. And, um, and the Gospels, we have copies within 35 to 75 years, and we have 24,000 copies in whole or in part of the New Testament. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery said, to be skeptical of the text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. In other words, you can't accept any of these writings or believe any of them are accurate if you don't believe the Bible when you look at this. Uh, for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Josh McDowell uh, wrote this. He said, not only does the New Testament text have far superior evidence for reliability than the classics, but it is also in better textual shape than the 37 plays of William Shakespeare, which were written in the 17th century after the invention of printing. In every one of Shakespeare's plays, there are gaps in the printed text where we have no idea what originally was said and are forced to guess to fill in the blanks. With the abundance of existing manuscripts of the New Testament, we know that nothing has been lost in the transmission of the text. So now the, the third section was, can I trust it? What are some, some challenges we hear? Excuse me. Um, to the scriptures. What about miracles? I can't believe that, can I? Well, there's what you call an anti-supernatural bias. To say that miracles can't be true because they can't be explained in terms of natural causes, or they can't be, can't be true because they, can't, they violate um, the uniformity of nature or something like that, is simply to say that they can't be true, or that miracles violate the principle that miracles can't exist. It's begging the question. If I say miracles can't exist because miracles don't exist, well, that's not really answering the, the challenge. You have to look at them and say, is this possible? C.S. Lewis has a great book simply titled Miracles, where he talks about them. And he talks about the idea, well, first of all, miracles assume science and nature, don't they? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. Right? In order to be a miracle, you have to first assume there's something that's normal and regular. And the miracle is something different than that. 
But C.S. Lewis talks about nature rushing in to absorb the miracle when it occurs. He calls it the point of invasion. And how you see these miracles, and at that point, all of a sudden, everything goes on from there. And he he talks about um, Mary's conception, virgin conception, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Mary, Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit. There's no man involved. But what happens after that? She gets pregnant. Right? She gets, don't say fat, she gets big. Right? Don't, don't say that. Um, she gets, just like any other pregnancy. Nature comes in, and nature doesn't have any problem with it. It just absorbs it and goes from there. When Jesus turned water into wine, that was still wine. If you drank a lot of it, you would get drunk. Right? As C.S. Lewis likens it, he says, God simply did, in an instant, what normally he takes several years to do. You have rain that falls from the sky, water. It falls in the ground, and water is a plant. The plant grows, the grapes grow. They're picked, they're fermented, and you have wine. And it has a process that goes on for years. He just did it like that. There's nothing that violates nature there. It just does it differently. Um, It's not a contradiction. There's a difference between a contradiction and a miracle. If I say that so-and-so walked through a wall, that's a miracle. If I say he walked through a wall and didn't walk through a wall, that's a contradiction. There's a difference. We have to explain it. We have to have evidence. But it's not on its face uh, a contradiction. Next, were the authors reliable? Can we trust these guys? Well, first of all, they wrote as eyewitnesses. That's considered very credible. They wrote contemporaneously with the events, right while they happened. Other people could confirm or refute what they said. They could be challenged. In Acts chapter 2, Peter speaks to the crowd. He goes, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. When Paul mentions the 500 who saw Christ once, he, he, he says some are, some are dead, but some are still alive. Go ask him. He's challenging him. Go ask him. Go see. They included the writer's embarrassing facts about themselves and their subjects, even heroes like King David. Why would they do that? Why would, when you're dictating the gospel, Peter is, or, or, or John's writing the gospel, why would you include things about yourself that weren't, weren't uh, favorable? They cited witnesses that wouldn't be credible. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And they record it. Why would they do that? And that women weren't allowed to testify in court in those days. They were not considered to be um, reliable witnesses. And they couldn't testify. If they were trying to, to convince someone, they would never, they would hide that fact and stress that they would just leave it out and say the men came. Because the men did come later. Why do they record it? Because it's true. It's just what happened. They didn't see any need, and they didn't have any desire to try and alter the story. This is what happened. The women were the first witnesses. Don't the manuscripts contain mistakes? Yes, they do. There are errors in the manuscripts. But here's the cool thing. They don't all make the same error. And we have thousands and thousands of them. So if I have an, um, an um, error in this manuscript, I can look at the other two, 3,000 and see they all get it right. I know what the text is. And if they all have a different mistake... For every one of those mistakes, the vast majority have it right. So it's very easy to construct the text. Errors in manuscripts don't, don't really create a problem. Um, why didn't God just preserve the originals? Why not just leave the original text? What do, what do we do as humans with relics like that? We worship them, right? Look at the, the, some of the stuff that's gone on over the centuries. In the Middle Ages, almost every major cathedral and a lot of minor ones had some sort of relic that supposedly had some connection to Christ or one of the apostles probably all of them were false, right? We have the Shroud of Turin and all these studies. You can watch the history, which is one of the worst-named channels ever. It's the History Channel. It's the lack of History Channel. But you can watch it, 
And you can see, you know, the special about the Shroud of Turin and all this. Look what we do. We try to venerate it. The, the Israelites had the ark. And what did they say? Hey, we're not doing too well with the Philistines. Let's bring the ark. Right? That was God's holy presence. That wasn't what it was intended for. Um, God knew what we would do and didn't do that. Also, we actually, by having thousands and thousands of copies, we have a better certainty of what the text was. If you had originals that were thousands of years old, they would begin to decay. Right? And we'd have to prove that they were the originals. And there'd be doubts about those. By having 24,000 copies of the New Testament and the vast abundance of copies we have from the Old Testament, there's no doubt what was written. It's, it's, it's unimpeachable. What about all the contradictions? Um, Norm Geiser said, when we begin to examine these instances that are brought forward in support of contradictions, they're found to be cases of difficult, not impossible, harmony. So in other words, some of them are difficult, but they're not impossible. For example, in Matthew 27, it says Judas hung himself. In Acts chapter uh, 1, it says that he fell headfirst, and, and pretty graphic, what this is, he burst open in the middle and his intestines spilled out. And Josh McDowell mentions a friend of his for whom that bothered him for years, and finally he reconciled it by saying, well, maybe he hung himself at the top of a cliff and then fell down. And there are other suggested possibilities of what happened. Then this friend went to the Holy Land and was taken to the traditional site where they say is where Judas killed himself. And what do you think he found? A field at the bottom of a cliff. Now, that doesn't prove that that's exactly what happened. But here's what also can't be proved, that it's not what happened. This is not a contradiction. There's a, there's a solution that can be proposed. It's, it's not an error. Um, I've given you some principles for understanding apparent discrepancies in the Bible. And I, I apologize again. We're going to go very fast here. But um, these are really um, things you need to keep, keep track of and keep in the back of your mind when people raise these issues or you hear these issues raised someplace. The unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable because we haven't, we don't know now. I mentioned before that it was considered a sign that the Bible was wrong when it mentioned the Hittite kingdoms. Well, we found it later. Um, so the unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable, it just isn't explained. Fallible interpretations do not mean fallible revelation. Okay? Uh, so we have interpretation of scriptures, we've, we put them into Eng the English language. We have, that doesn't mean that the original documents, which is where the inspiration lies, but the original documents um, were wrong. You have to understand the context of a passage. This is true in so many places, but you've got to really read for context. You interpret difficult passages in the light of clear ones. If you have a passage you're not sure, we're not sure whether that's difficult, we don't look at that alone. We look at other passages to help us with it. And along with that, you don't base teaching on obscure passages. At the end of John chapter 7 into John chapter 8, there's a passage about the woman that the Pharisees brought to Jesus. And the earliest, you know, because she was caught in adultery and they wanted to stone her and they asked him what he thought they should do. Well, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have that story in it. So what we do, it's included, it's footnoted. People say, hey, this was in the, in the King James, it was in manuscripts we had. We found older ones. It wasn't in there. We think it may not have been in there, but it's presented for you to look at and judge. But there is no major teaching that comes from that passage. We don't use it for that. The Bible is a human book with human characteristics. These are human authors. We have to remember that. Just because the report is incomplete does not mean it's false. Okay? People emphasize what they're emphasizing. One passage, Jesus comes and it says he met two demon-possessed men. Another gospel, it says it focuses on the one of them who may have been the more dominant of the two. 
It doesn't mean it's a contradiction or an error. Um, New Testament citations of the Old Testament need not always be exact. This was not a memorization contest. Sometimes there's quick citations given, and they're not. And actually, it was common to take two texts and quote them. And Paul would do this often. He'd quote two, and he's two from two different places. And he would quote them both together because they were, they were making the point he was trying to make. The Bible does not necessarily approve of all it records. The Bible records without comment the polygamy of several kings and several figures in the Old Testament. It does not say it approves of them. Where it does speak about polygamy, God is very clear. It's not right. You don't do it. So these, but it just doesn't speak about them. That doesn't mean it approves of them. The Bible uses non-technical, everyday language. You've got to remember that. Uh, it uses round numbers as well as exact numbers. Very common in ancient times. You can't get too hung up on some of the numbers that are used. Um, You've got to note when it uses different literary devices. Uh, when, when, Jesus, when it says in the Gospels that Jesus, I am the door, we don't say, well, he meant he was made of wood and swung on hinges. We understand that's, that's not what he, he was just speaking metaphorically. Uh, an error in a copy does not mean an error in the original. That's similar to the point made before. Um, general statements don't necessarily mean universal promises. In Proverbs, it says that if you, if you walk according to God's ways, even your enemies will find favor with you. Well, that's, you can't find, well, that's not always true. Therefore, that statement's false. No, it's a general statement. That's generally maybe true, but it isn't always true. right? And the Bible's very clear about that. And then later revelation supersedes previous revelation. God no longer requires us, for example, he, to sacrifice animals for our sins. When my boys were young... I was happy when they ate with their hands, and I didn't have to feed them. At some point, that was no longer any good, and I wanted them to use a spoon. At some point, I said, no, no, you've got to use a fork, right? We have progressive instruction we give, and it's the same uh, with God to us. So all this comes back for us as Christians. What does it mean? You know, we have all of this evidence, and we have the scriptures. We hold them in our hands, and it's so easy for us. And this is, you know, we're going to kind of close here, but... In the application part, um, it's so easy for us to take them for granted, right? Um, Psalm says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not because I can't sin if I store your word in my heart, but it's a preventative. Anyone take a daily one a day or vitamin C in the winter or vitamin D around here? You hear that a lot, right? Why? You're not sick. It's a preventative, right? It's meant to help with something. You're taking it. Men, if you're over, I don't know, used to be 50, then it's 40, then it's 30, you take an aspirin every day, right? A small dose of aspirin. That helps with your heart, right? It's a preventative. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. And it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows the way. We're, so many times we're confused and we don't know the way. And God is saying, look, I've given you a light for your path. Now, we want to see a light to the end of the hall, right? He says, no, no, I give you the light right here at your feet. You only need to know the next step, and we have to trust him. Do we really live each day as if the Bible is the ultimate authority in our lives? Is it the first place we go for instruction, for guidance? Do we follow its precepts even when, or especially when, they go against what we feel like doing. That's the easiest time to not think about it, right? I'll get to that later. Right? Especially when do we follow what it says. John Bechtel was born in Hong Kong. 
His parents were missionaries in China. He and his mother barely escaped the Japanese occupation in World War II. His father was actually interned in a, prison, a Japanese prison camp. After college, he went back to Hong Kong and served with his wife Donna for 40 years as a missionary. And in the mid-1970s, he visited the city of Guilin in communist China with his wife and a friend named Gordon MacDonald and MacDonald's son. He desperately wanted to meet a Chinese Christian. Um, if you were around then, if you're old enough, you remember that under Mao, the Chinese persecuted Christians relentlessly and intensely. And uh, he had never met a Chinese Christian in communist China. And they brought Bibles if they could find some to give them to them. And he had questions he wanted to ask them and things he wanted to talk to them about. And very soon after they got there, his wife, he wasn't around at that moment for some reason, his wife met some Christians. And she was so excited and she got the Bibles and she gave them the Bibles and she completely forgot about all the questions and the things he wanted to do. And he kept, and they were gone. And he was not very happy. Um, You've got to hear him tell the story. It's pretty funny. He says, I kind of wanted to strangle her at that time. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he decided they were leaving the next day. He decided to take a walk. And as he's walking, he said, I saw a woman who was particularly stylish. Everyone was wearing blue and gray. It was kind of, everyone dressed the same. under. But she really looked stylish. And she, like, she wanted to be noticed. And so he goes, that's my target. So he went over to her and he said, do you know where I can buy some perfume? Knowing full well that there was no perfume in China. And she closed her eyes and went, oh, I can still smell it. It's been 30 years. I can still smell it. But no, there's no perfume in China. He said, um, well, I have some perfume, and I'll give it to you if you can introduce me to a Christian. And she said, I know a Christian. Meet me on such and such a street at 10 o'clock tonight after the lights go out, and I'll take you to meet her. So he goes upstairs praying that his wife actually did have some perfume because he really didn't know. Um, and she had a little bit in a bottle. So he opened the cap, filled it with water, shook it up, and that night he and his wife and McDonald and his son went and they met this lady. He said, okay, get as small as you can. And they kind of snuck through the streets and they got to this two-story wooden house, this big house. And they go inside upstairs to a room and in this room is a wooden bed and a wooden table and chairs and a chest of drawers, very, very sparsely furnished. And they're waiting. So while they're waiting, he asked their guide about this Christian they were about to meet. She said, oh, everybody knows her. Everybody knows her. Her parents owned this house and all the property in this area. They were Christians. When the communists came because they were wealthy and educated, they were killed. She was put on trial in a stadium with several thousand people watching her. She was made to stand naked before the judge with a dunce cap and a sign that said Christian on it. The judge told her that if she renounced Christ, he'd let her go. We all held our breath hoping she would just do it. You can always ask forgiveness later. Christ will forgive you. Just do it. Just say it. You don't have to mean it. But she replied to the judge, I will follow Jesus for the rest of my life. The judge became very angry. He was furious. He sentenced her to clean the sewers on this street every day for the rest of her life. In those days, the sewers were an open ditch on both sides of the street. And to keep everything moving, you had to get a rake and just rake the sewage down the street. And that was her job every day for the rest of her life on the street where her parents had once owned all of the property in the area. She lives here in the servants' quarters of this house, which once her parents owned. She's 62 years old now. Just then they heard hurried footsteps and in burst this short, fat Chinese lady with a smile from ear to ear. Bundled up against the cold, he said, like a bubble. And she looked at him and said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. She goes, let me hear you pray. So John says, I began to pray, and as I was praying, I decided to sneak a peek. 
tears were running down her face. When he finished, she said, that's the first time I've heard a Christian speak or pray in 30 years. She told John that she loved Jesus with all her heart. So John said, well, why don't you pray? Despite everything she'd been through and all that had happened, the first words out of her mouth in Chinese were, I praise you. Praise you. Over and over again, she prays. And then, I thank you. Thank you for what you've given me. She's praising and thanking him. When they finish, he gives her all the money he has that he can spare. Because I don't want that. He insulted her. He says, what can I do for you? All I want in the whole world is a copy of God's word. They didn't have any more left and they were leaving the next day. So John said, I'll find one. If there's one in this city, I'll find it. And they left and went back to their hotel. When they got there, who did they see at the front desk but a pastor from Hong Kong named Ronald Yu. He rushed over and said, Ron, do you have a Bible? And he said, I have a Bible. Do I have a Bible? I have six of them. He goes, give me one. He goes, I can't. I was caught with them when I came in. They were very angry. They didn't take them, but they marked up my passport. Six Bibles in, six Bibles out. I can't leave. I have to leave with six Bibles. Just loan it to me for tonight. So he did. So he took the Bibles back to his room, took out his Swiss Army knife, took the first one, and cut out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Went to the second one, cut out another section, and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, until he made a Bible out of the pieces of these other Bibles. And they all looked fine. They had pieces missing, but they were all together. His wife furiously began sewing as fast as she could. She made a cover out of a T-shirt, a sorry-looking thing. In the morning, he said, I quickly gave Ronald back his Bible so he wouldn't notice what I'd done. He said, don't worry, later on he did get out. Okay, no problem. He woke up Gordon at 6 o'clock in the morning and said, I've got a Bible, let's go. Because that's a Bible? It's a Bible, it's all here, let's go. So they went. When they got to her house, they found her sitting on her bed, praying for a Bible. They brought all the clothes they didn't need for their trip. They had piles. And they, they brought them in for her. She says, put that over there. Not even a thank you. Then they pulled all their money, McDonald's as well as his, and they offered it to her. It was four years' worth of her salary. Yeah, put that over there, too. I didn't ask for that. I only asked for one thing. John said, I have it. He took out the sorriest excuse for a Bible you could ever see. She grabbed it, and she hugged it. And she said, precious. Precious in Chinese. She said, over and over, precious. She began to cry. Eventually, she composed herself and pointed to the clothes and the money and said, that's not precious. That's not precious. Only one thing is precious. This. This is what's precious. I haven't held it for 30 years. I know some of it, but now I can know all of it. She went on and on about how much this crummy Bible meant to her. And then she said to them, go back to your country. Think of the wealth of Hong Kong at the time of the U.S. Go back to your country this woman who cleans sewers every day with a rake and tell them the answer is found in this book in God's word precious do we look at the scriptures do we treat them as precious do we let them be the center of our lives there's nothing else that we do nothing else that we have that matters this is God's revelation to us it's his word to us Are we going to this morning, I'm challenging you and myself, are we going to make this the center of our lives going forward or not? Is it precious to us? Don't we do that? They're going to come, we're going to sing a song, but let's pray. Quickly, just bow your heads. I just want you to 
Spend a few minutes and just ask the Lord to give you a love for his word. Lord, I pray that we would cherish your word the way we cherish our own lives. Lord, give us a hunger, a desperate hunger to know more of you, to understand your word. Make it so that we also want to say we know some of it, but we want to know all of it. Teach us to love it. Not the way we want to love it, not when we want to love it, not in the, at the time we want to pay attention to it, Lord, but all the time, the way you want us to read it, the way you want us to learn it, and the way you want us to have it. We love you, Lord. We love you. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to reveal yourself to us and not hide yourself from us. Thank you for your salvation. Lord, convict us this morning. Lord, and use that conviction by the Holy Spirit to create a change in our lives as we go forward. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.